Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Diagnosis and Treatment of Parkinson's Disease. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on June 28, 2017. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated and coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Dr. Liana Rosenthal, Assistant Professor at the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University and Director of the Morris K. Udall Parkinson's Disease Research Center of Excellence, discusses new diagnostic criteria for Parkinson's disease and some new medications and surgical treatments available to treat Parkinson's disease. Hello. Great. Thank you so much. So um, first thing I want to do is I want to give a bit of a definition of how we tend to think about our patients. And I want to talk about Parkinson's disease versus Parkinsonism. So Parkinsonism is more of an umbrella term that we use to define folks who have at least two out of the following four cardinal features. They have to have some bradykinesia, some slowness to their movement, some rigidity, a rest tremor, and some balance problems, but not from any other cause. So if you have at least two of those four things, you have Parkinsonism. But then about 75% of folks who have Parkinsonism have Parkinson's disease. And within Parkinson's disease, that needs to be a truly progressive neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and that the pathologic hallmark of that is going to be the Lewy body. So within our folks who have Parkinsonism, about 75% again have Parkinson's disease. And then that other 25% have Parkinsonism from some other cause. They can have it from medications, they can have it from strokes, or they can have it from a number of different, what we call the atypical Parkinson's diseases. So those are the PSPs, the progressive supranuclear palsies, the multiple system atrophies, um, and a number of other diseases that are also neurodegenerative, share many common features to Parkinson's disease, share many common treatments to Parkinson's disease, because our treatments are not that specific yet, but are not exactly the same as PD, and they look and act a little bit different. So I'm going to spend the rest of the talk specifically talking about Parkinson's disease, but I want you to always keep in mind, especially as I move through to talk about the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, that a lot of times when we're diagnosing PD, one of our main goals is to differentiate that PD from some of those atypical Parkinson's disorders that I just spoke of. So the pathophysiology of Parkinson's disease, and the key point of this, is that it, the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease are due to the loss of the dopamine cells in the substantia nigra. And the reason that's important is because at this time, pretty much all of our symptomatic treatments are based on giving dopamine back. So the motor 
features of the disease are all from the loss of dopamine. Our treatments are all the different ways that we give dopamine back. Um, if, in looking at this slide here, the brain on the left-hand side is a um, person with Parkinson's disease, and you can see there aren't really any black dots there, whereas the brain on the right-hand side in the area that's circled, there are a lot of little black dots, and those black cells those are the substantia nigra cells because the brain on the right-hand side is from someone who does not have Parkinson's disease. The brain on the left, where the substantia nigra is very pale, is someone who does have Parkinson's disease. So that's really all I'm going to say about the pathophysiology of Parkinson's, but certainly I'm happy to answer more questions at a later point. But again, take-home point is that it is due to the loss of dopamine cells but that is specifically the motor features of the disease, by which I mean the movement part of the disease is due to loss of those dopamine cells. So Parkinson's disease, again, is defined as you have to have bradykinesia, that's the slowness of movement, and at least one of the following things. You have to have the rigidity, the rest tremor, um, and you have to have uh, postural instability or balance problems, but not from any other cause. And one important point that I want to bring out is that about 25% of people with Parkinson's disease do not have a rest tremor. So certainly if a patient has one, that's very helpful in terms of diagnosis, but just because they don't have a tremor doesn't mean it's not Parkinson's. So it is very common early in the disease for patients to talk about all of these things here that we have listed. So they'll talk about how their handwriting is smaller, they'll talk about slowness, They'll use the term weakness often, but it's not really a weakness. It's more that the limb just isn't working very well. It'll be stiff. It'll be achy. They'll drag their legs. They'll shuffle their walk. They're slunched over when they walk. They'll have trouble getting out of chairs or trouble rolling over in bed. Common complaint is trouble getting out of the car as well. Their voice is softer or lower. There's also a loss of sense of smell, some dream enactment, constipation that usually predates the motor features, the slowness by a lot, by many years. Um, anxiety and depression, as Dr. Pantone are going to talk about, is also very common. And you can also have a bit of a sort of a passiveness. It's a, they seem, they're not quite themselves. Things are just slower. And some of these complaints, especially the um, loss of smell and the constipation and the dream enactment, oftentimes come in many years before they actually present to the doctor. And then at a certain point, they can get a tremor, they can get the slowness, the handwriting comes in, and then they actually come to more uh, medical attention. So I want to point out that when folks are diagnosing Parkinson's disease, most of the time, Parkinsonism is Parkinson's disease. So again, it's about 75%. I apologize on the slide here. It looks like the percentages uh, they phased out, but you can tell on the pie chart. About 75% of Parkinsonism is Parkinson's disease. And then that 25% is that other group that I spoke about before. The people who have things like progressive supranuclear palsy or PSP, multiple system atrophy, corticobasal syndrome. There's also, again, medications and strokes are in there as other causes. But really, we're going to focus on talking about Parkinson's disease. So um, there is drug-induced Parkinsonism, um, drugs that can reduce dopamine transition. So the things that uh, frequently come up are things like risperidone, haloperidol, uh, metoclopramide, promethazine. And when folks have drug-induced Parkinsonism, it can sometimes be indistinguishable from PD. 
And so what we do to manage it is we can reduce or discontinue the medication, and it can take months to resolve. Now, for some of our patients, it's relatively easy to take off take off their medication, but certainly some patients with severe psychiatric illnesses, we are unable to really fundamentally change their antipsychotics. Dr. Pantone can talk more about this. Um, but there are some antipsychotics that are less likely to cause Parkinson's-like features. And so when patients have those diseases, we, um, we are able to switch them over to other antipsychotics. And really this involves a very close interaction between the managing neurologist and the managing psychiatrist in terms of making sure the patient is on the best medication to both manage their psychiatric illness and also then not cause any greater problems with their uh, with the side effects of their medication and with the movement disorder that's been developing. Um, so one of the things that's really important to point out is that Parkinson's disease is much more than the motor symptoms of the disease. So um, in a study of more than 1,000 Parkinson's patients, 99% of people reported non-motor symptoms, and the non-motor symptoms increase over time. Depression and apathy were the most frequently identified non-motor symptoms that uh, had a determinant on health-related quality of life. Motor function severity is, of course, also important in terms of health-related quality of life. Some other non-motor features that patients talk about, urinary urgency and frequency come up a lot fatigue come up a lot, um, and certainly sleep problems come up a lot as well. So it is important when you're talking about treatments for patients with Parkinson's disease, the non-pharmacologic therapy is actually absolutely critical. So we can briefly talk about meds later. I'm happy to answer any questions about medications, but I can't stress enough the importance of these non-pharmacologic treatments. Regular exercise is absolutely critical and they need to be doing it all the time. Um, there are a number of studies of showing improved motor function for our patients who exercise. Um, anecdotally, my patients who exercise definitely do better than those who don't. And if you look at all the studies across the board, patients who exercise do better than those who don't. A number of meta-analyses have shown this as well. So a regular exercise program is absolutely critical. They should be doing exercise that is challenging to them. Um, in addition, physical therapy is very important in order to restore their confidence in walking and maintaining balance. Um, sometimes they can use a cane or walker. Also, an occupational therapist can help plan placement of assistive devices. I very frequently am sending my patients to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy for swallowing issues or voice training as they come up. And these allied health treatments are absolutely critical to help supporting the patient in terms of management of their disease. So the um, again, some of these non-motor symptoms that have come up are things that include the psychiatric symptoms, sleep, gastrointestinal issues, um, pain is a big problem, fatigue, urinary issues. Um, in addition, the cardiovascular dizziness comes up. Frequently, some of my patients are on antihypertensive medications, some medications that lower their blood pressure. Um, because prior to development of their Parkinson's disease, they had high blood pressure. So oftentimes, we end up in conjunction with their cardiologist or their primary care doctor, actually decreasing their antihypertensives or even taking them off those medications, because the Parkinson's disease itself 
will lead to slightly lower blood pressures and the carbidopolevodopa, the Cinemet, which is one of the primary medication treatments for Parkinson's disease, can also lower their blood pressure. Um, so you can certainly read here in more detail some of the other non-motor symptoms. So here I have a list of some of the commonly used medications to treat Parkinson's disease. I am not going to go over this in, in great detail. These slides will be available. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, but rather want to point out that the management, the medication management of our patients can become very, very complex. Early in the disease, it's oftentimes relatively simple. Um, patients are on one or two different medications. But as the disease progresses, the patients are oftentimes on a whole host of medications taken multiple times a day. The other thing I want to point out amongst that's very important because these medications tend to end up on uh, common order sets is on the bottom right-hand corner, I have a list of never use. So if the patient with Parkinson's disease ends up in the emergency room or the hospital or the assisted living, they should not be given haloperidol, aripiprazole, any of the antipsychotics, they should not be given metoclopramide as well for their nausea. So instead, if a patient needs it, they can be given Seroquel in very small doses, or they can be given Zofran for nausea if they need it. Um, and so those medications are unfortunately very commonly used in the emergency room or in post-op cases, things like that. But it's very important that for the patients with Parkinson's disease, some thought is given into making sure to take those meds off the common order sets, and instead um, nurses and care staff are given options, if the patient needs it, of medications like Zofran for their nausea and not metoclopramide. Um, and certainly we can answer more questions about medication management later. So there are some common complications that occur with levodopa, usually after about four to six years of use. It's important to point out, though, that these complications of levodopa are complications of both the medication and of the disease. So while patients would not develop these complications if they were not taking the medication, they, the timing of the development of the complications is also related to the disease. There have been patients who have not been on any medication 12 to 14 years after having symptoms, and they can develop these complications within one or two doses of getting the medication. So it is both a combination of the disease itself and the medication. And furthermore, it's also very important that we know that patients who take levodopa do better than those who don't. So even though there are these complications, and we should be aware of the complications, and we should have patients on the lowest effective dose, Patients should not be afraid to take the medication, and they definitely need to be encouraged to take the medication to adequately manage their symptoms to allow themselves to function well. So with that in mind, about 40% of people will develop dyskinesias after about four to six years. The dyskinesias are the fidgety, flowy movements. The most common person that people would know with dyskinesias are Michael J. Fox, but most people's dyskinesias do not get to the point of the severity of Michael J. Fox's, for example. Um, most people, you can just see just a small um, hand movement, a swaying of the body. Um, risk factors for developing the dyskinesias include a younger age at onset, a higher dosage, or longer disease duration. So a lot has been put into then management 
of these uh, complications of levodopa and management of patients who are in the more um, advanced stage. And so I want to point out patient selection for advanced surgical treatment. And so a PD patient who has mid to advanced PD, a Parkinson's patient who has sustained good response to levodopa, and who fluctuates in their levodopa response. Oftentimes, they have dyskinesia. So by fluctuate, I mean patients who take their medication, half hour to an hour later, they feel good. Oftentimes, they then start to develop dyskinesias. Another hour or two go by, and their medication wears off. So they feel off, and they're slower and stiffer and can't move as well. They take the pill again, and the same cycle continues. Those patients are very good candidates for deep brain stimulation surgery, or DBS, or the levodopa intestinal gel. There are a number of other potential advanced surgical treatments or advanced um, medication trials that are coming along on the market, but these are the only two that are currently approved. Um, but there are a number of research studies going on, with the idea being that for a lot of our patients, the biggest problem is the lack of predictability. And with the, when their levodopa fluctuates on and off like that, their days are not predictable. And so the purpose of the DBS, the purpose of the levodopa intestinal gel, is to smooth out their days and allow for increased predictability. So this is just a picture of the levodopa carbidopa intestinal gel. And I put this up here just because it's new. It's only somewhat recently FDA approved. What this is here is the, um, you can see the pump kind of on the right-hand side, and then the duodopa cassette that connects in the, to what is a um, gastric port or a peg tube. It goes into the stomach, and then it goes into the intestines and ends in the jejunum. And it's a steady stream of levodopa, therefore getting away from the pharmacokinetics that you see with all pills, where you take a pill, you get the peak dose of the pill, and you get the dyskinesias, and then the pill wears off and you get the off time, whereas the intestinal gel smooths things out. And similarly, the DBS, or the deep brain surgery, also smooths things out. So um, in summary, the idea is that we diagnose Parkinson's disease based on the four cardinal features that I mentioned before, the bradykinesia, the rigidity, the rest tremor, and the uh, balance issues. There are also a number of supporting features of what patients talk about in terms of their slowness of movement, handwriting changes, change in their face, the way their um, face looks. Um, and then there are also, um, today I've spoken about some new medications and surgical treatments, um, but everything still goes after that similar mechanism of action of replacing the dopamine that was lost in those cells that are, are making dopamine. Um, so the main take-home points that I really want to make certain patients, uh, folks realize is that Parkinson's disease patients can often have a, um, a very complicated medication regimen, and they have many non-motor symptoms that Dr. Pantone is going to talk about further that interact with their medications and with their other diseases. Um, and there are many symptoms that can be attributed to Parkinson's disease. Um, and so we, patients can have a whole host of changes that are absolutely attributed to PD. But I just warn everyone on the call that as much as we like to attribute everything to Parkinson's disease and use Occam's razor, I also like what has been called Hickam's dictum, which is patients can have as many diseases as they damn well please. So I just point that out as a uh, take-home point as well. Thank you very much.